And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Impossible for one who believes. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress begins with a character by the name of Christian who is sitting with a burden on his back and a book in his hand. And it's in that moment as he is in despair that he's visited by a character by the name of Evangelist. And Evangelist points him towards a yonder wicked gate uh, to which he can find the kingdom of God and hope with removing this burden that is upon his back. And so he sets flight towards that wicked gate. And as he goes, what we find is no sooner does he take flight than he finds himself bogged down into the mud and the slough of despair. Uh, He cannot move. And we find that it is fear that has chased him off of the path when all of a sudden another character, Help, shows up to pull him out of the mud. Now, when he pulls him out of the mud, Christian asks Help, Why is it that the king has not repaired or mended this this mud pit? Like, what's going on? And to which this character help responds, saying this, It can't be mended, because as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them together settle in this place. And this is the reason for the badness of this ground. I think probably many of us could relate to this sense of uh, excitement over faith and belief. And then as soon as we believe, we are immediately attacked by some kind of danger or difficulty. And we begin to ask questions. We begin to doubt. And that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we are back in the Gospel of Mark. This is the amazing true story of Jesus, uh, where we are this morning. And you'll remember that just last week we saw how Jesus took Peter, James, and John up upon a mountain where he exposed them to his glory, the very glory 
of God. And there they beheld him. And, and you might think, like, that is the ultimate mountaintop experience. How does it get any better than that? Well, uh, it only gets better if, like, God himself tops it. God the Father comes in the glory cloud and descends and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now friends, there is not much more of a mountaintop experience than you can have uh, than that. And that's exactly what these three men experience. Well, this week what we find is, is that that Jesus who carries all authority is about to descend from that mountain, from this mountaintop experience. But here's the problem with mountaintop experiences. They are, all, they are always followed by valleys. And this morning, what we're going to see is, is that uh, they are coming down from the mountain to the valley. And, and that's what Jesus is doing in this text, only to find a mob of complaining scribes and, and other people who have gathered to, to complain and argue over the disciples' inability to expel a demon. And so they are, they, are, they are screaming at this crowd. I mean, can you imagine what it must be like to come down from that to that? I mean, what a discouraging moment. But here what we're going to find this morning is this. Jesus is going to show us, as he showed the disciples, this reality. Jesus, Jesus, catch this, is the object of our faith who liberates us from spiritual bondage. Jesus is the object of our faith who liberates us from spiritual bondage. That's a lesson that Jesus is going to teach his people this morning. Now we see this first in verses 14 to 18, where the disciples fail to cast out a demon. So you can look there with me in your copy of God's Word again in Matthew chapter 9 where we're going to read this account. But before we do, let's take a moment and pray and ask God's help. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, this morning as we come before you and we open up your Word, uh, Father, we pray that you would help our ears and our hearts to hear. Help us to hear you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We need your help. We are utterly dependent upon you. Without your Spirit helping us, we will not understand what you have to say to us. So Lord, give us ears to hear we ask. Amen. Well, this is the first thing that we see in verses 14 to 18. The disciples fail to cast out a demon. So let's look at those first two verses, uh, or verses 14 to 16. Here's what he says. Beginning in verse 14. And when the boy, or, or when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now see, tr- trouble, you'll notice, meets Jesus as soon as he gets down the mountain. It's the usual suspects, the scribes and the crowds. And they have surrounded those other nine disciples that were left down on the mountain And as soon as the crowd's amazed, as soon as Jesus shows up, the crowds are amazed or happy to see Jesus. And he's asking them, what what is this commotion about? And it's at that moment, from the crowd, a a father screams back at Jesus, and he says this. He explains the problem in verses 17 to 18. There he says, in verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able. Now, this desperate father, you can imagine, he comes looking for Jesus to heal his son of this demon possession. He's looking for Jesus' help, uh, which this possession seems to be causing epilepsy-type conditions 
for his son. And this has happened from a young age. He would fall onto the ground with seizures and foam at the mouth. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who has struggled with epilepsy. Uh, It is a a scary thing. I've had friends in the past who have, have struggled with that. But just to be clear here, in case you're confused, this boy's condition is spiritual. It is spiritual first with physical consequences. Now, I don't have time to belabor here on this, but I've said before, physical and spiritual, uh, they, always, they don't always go hand in hand. In other words, every sickness isn't due to a specific sin. But here, what we find is, is that what is in view is a spiritual, a unique spiritual bondage for this boy. And this father came for the man Jesus. That's who he wanted to see but, but, but he is frustrated, and the reason he's frustrated is because he came for the A team, but he got the B team, the disciples, right? And the disciples can't quite cut it. And so here, this man is discouraged, disappointed, and angry. Now, we don't have time to linger here for long, but the disciples are probably even more surprised and disappointed than the crowds over their inability to help this boy. Now, now why would I say that? Well, don't forget, it was just in Mark 6 where we are told that Jesus sent out those disciples two by two to go all throughout the land proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons. And we're told in Mark 6.13 this about that trip. It says, they cast out, catch this, many demons. Many demons. Now you can just imagine the scene from the disciples' perspective. A father comes with crowds looking for Jesus to free his son, but they find uh, the disciples, and the disciples say, hey, look, you need to chill. We got this. We have cast out many demons. We can do this. And so the, the guy says, well, I came for Jesus, but I'll take any help I can get. And in that moment, they go to doing what they do, and this demon does not budge. He does not move. So while Peter, James, and John, catch this, are beholding the glory of God in Christ, down in the valley we find these disciples who are experiencing utter ministry failure in the valley. I'm guessing they're publicly confronted by their own inadequacies here. Let me just ask you this morning, have you ever experienced ministry failure? Now now maybe you're thinking that doesn't really pertain to you. Uh, because uh, you are not a minister. But what is interesting is, is the Bible actually says that you are, that we all are ministers. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that if you are a believer who has put your faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 says the Holy Spirit has given you gifts for the building up of the local church. Not only that, if you turn over to Ephesians 4, we're told that preachers and teachers are given to local churches for this purpose, to equip them for the works of ministry. That means that you are a minister. You are on mission wherever you are to share the gospel of Christ, to example his love, and to do good for others. So let me ask you again, have you experienced ministry failure? I'm guessing you have. I'm guessing you have if you are human. I have. Have you ever felt like you failed to bring people near to God when you wanted to? I'm guessing this morning as we are celebrating Mother's Day, it is a a great day, a joyful day, a happy day, but for some it can be a sad day because you are also simultaneously reminded of all kinds of failures as a mom, a ministry given to you by God. Uh, You you might this morning be reminded uh, on Mother's Day 
of all kinds of failures in your life. Maybe you are discouraged because your friend's kids know way more Bible verses than your kids do. Or, or maybe this morning you are discouraged because you have older kids who have not put their faith in Christ and are not living for Jesus, and you feel like you have failed. Or, or maybe it's this morning that your kids don't even want to talk to you, and it's Mother's Day, and you're reminded acutely of that. There are all kinds of fresh ways that you can be reminded of failures, ministry failures, ministry that God has given you. And it's not just moms. We, we know that uh, dads and fathers also can be discouraged over the failure that they've had to actually raise and train up their family in God's word. They haven't led spiritually well, and they are reminded of their failures. Or maybe this morning, maybe you don't fit in those categories, but there are others. Uh, maybe it's that you have tried to share Christ with someone, someone you love. And they have rejected the word. And you feel a strange sense of the fact that you have disappointed God. That's what you think. Maybe you are acutely aware of all kinds of ways that you have failed uh, this morning in ministry. And and, and you have experienced this kind of ministry failure. And, And let me just ask you, in those moments when you feel like you have failed God, what begins, what kind of conversation happens in your soul? Is it that you begin to ask in your soul and doubt whether or not the power of God is at work in you? I'm guessing that that happens to you. It happens to me sometimes. I begin to feel like, what have I done? Lord, isn't that the question? What have I done that has resulted in this failure? See, Christians fail. And we need to repent when we don't honor Christ. But we we need to do more than just do better when we find ourselves in those moments of failure. We need to believe better. See, we need a better faith in those moments. Now, here's the interesting thing. Don't miss this. I believe here what we see is that ministry success, catch me, ministry success can be just as dangerous to our faith as our ministry failures. Ministry success can be just as dangerous to our faith as ministry failures. Why do I say that? See, I believe here what we have seen in this text is that ministry failure can actually reveal doubts that were not exposed during ministry successes. In other words, it's not just that all of a sudden failure has hit you in a way that it didn't before and now all of a sudden those external things cause you to doubt. That's not it. I believe it's that that occasion, that problem that came to you that you had not experienced before all of a sudden surfaced doubt that was latent that you hadn't seen before and all of a sudden you realized that you didn't believe quite like you thought you did. Boy, it remained so hidden when things were going well. But when things got tough, that's when you realized that you weren't really quite clinging to Jesus alone. And I believe that's exactly what these disciples found in their ministry failure. They discovered in that moment that it wasn't Christ alone that they were clinging to for the authority over spiritual darkness. They were looking to other places. And see, somewhere amidst casting all those demons out of all of those people, their focus subtly shifted from the object of their faith to the results of their faith. And maybe that's you this morning. You are not looking to Christ. You are looking to the results. And you need to be reminded of your utter need and dependency on Jesus alone. See, they took confidence in themselves rather than God. But here, catch this, here, it was the mercy of an angry mob that was demanding results that now awakens these disciples to their spiritual neediness, right? And that's where we are. We must regularly, brothers and sisters, we must regularly be awakened to the reality that we face spiritual problems that we as humans don't have the solutions to in and of ourselves apart from Christ. And the object of their faith, that is the problem. It was not Christ. 
But there's a second thing that we see here. It's the most important thing. It's this, that Jesus is the object of faith that delivers us from spiritual bondage. Jesus is the object of our faith that delivers us from spiritual bondage. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that in verses 19 to 27. Uh, as you look there and read, what you'll notice is, is that Jesus focuses the issue at hand, the problem, on their faith. He says that's the issue. Now just notice what he says in verses 19 to 22 in response to this father. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 19. He says this, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. From childhood. And he went on to say in verse 22, And it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, here, take note of a number of things. First, take note of their pervasive lack of faith in verses 19 to 20. The pervasive lack of faith. It is, it is everywhere. Uh, you'll notice here that Jesus responds to the inability of these disciples to cast out this demon from this child who is bound to spiritual bondage by addressing, I believe, both the disciples and the crowd as a faithless generation. In other words, I believe that he's not just speaking of the disciples' faith, but the whole generation's faith and their faithlessness. And he asked, how long am I to bear with you? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly the words that I want to hear from Jesus to me, right? I mean, that's not exactly one of the things I imagine when I come before Jesus on his throne. How long am I to bear with you? Well, it's going to be eternity, so I hope this works out well, right? And yet here he's thinking, there is something about your faith that makes it hard to be with you. And Jesus can hardly bear to be with them because of their lack of faith. Even the demon seems to be a little more responsive to the identity of Jesus than this crowd does in verse 20. Because even it says in verse 20, when the Spirit saw him, immediately we're told this is what he did. He convulsed the boy. Like he knew that something was up. But don't miss here the pervasive lack of faith that Jesus witnesses. And that is a huge problem. Why? Well, because we know that Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it is without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And here he has just said that this generation is faithless. That is a magnificent problem. None of them have the mustard seed of faith necessary to remove this demon. And if faith is required to be in the kingdom, and they don't have faith, then that means that they are in another kingdom. Which brings us to our second point, the, under the, the second point, or second sub-point, which is this, the kingdom of utter darkness in verses 21 to 22. So here we see he actually displays what that kingdom, that other kingdom that is not the kingdom of God looks like. And here's what he says about it. Hang with me. Um, I, I want to give you a picture of this kingdom before we see what it's described like in 21 to 22. But let me just say this. We need here 
to look at this kid's bondage, his spiritual bondage, carefully. Now, here's why. Uh, I believe that the scriptures are very clear that there are two kingdoms in the Bible. There are just two. There is uh, the kingdom, uh, the domain of darkness, and there is the kingdom of the beloved son. That's what the Bible tells us. So I'm just wondering this morning, which zip code do you find yourself in? Are you in the domain of darkness, or are you in the kingdom of the beloved son? We are all born sinners by nature and by choice, and that means that every human is born into the domain of darkness and are in opposition to God. That's our nature. We are by nature sinners. We are by nature enemies of God. It's who we're born. It's part of our uh, genetic makeup, so to speak. It's a metaphor. But we were born that way. Now, here's uh, how I'd explain that. I, I don't know if you've been reading papers this last week, but they've been exploding with articles that are entitled something like Bambi's Revenge. Uh, and, and here's what's going on. Um, they actually have found the first documented case of a deer eating human flesh. Now, now here's what happened. Uh, they set up a camera to study scavengers that had motion detectors on it. And so it popped on and they saw, you know, I don't know, like a, a, a possum or a raccoon or something, you know, these different scavengers. And then all of a sudden it pops on one time and here's a deer in the headlights with a, a human like rib bone hanging out of its mouth. And he's like, what? They're like, we've never seen this before. And, and it's in every newspaper. Now, now here's what's interesting. You, you don't really find a lot of, of news articles that talk about lions, you know, eating people or lions uh, eating meat. The uh, reason is, is because lions are, are carnivores and lions eat meat. That's what they do. It's their nature, right? But what it does make papers is whenever you find a deer eating meat, because deer don't eat meat, they're herbivores. They, they eat herbs and, you know, plants and stuff. And, and so that is strange, and here's the reality. Uh, deers have a nature. Humans have a nature. Our nature is, is that we are sinners. We are born sinners as, as Adam, our first father, sinned. And, and what that means is, because we are born sinners, we are born enemies of God. Because every sin is against a great God, the king of the universe. And that means that we are born into the domain of darkness. Now, that's not just what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. So we're all born into this domain of darkness. That's the kingdom that is our manufacturer's default setting. Now, we see this all over the scriptures. Uh, Psalm 51.5, speaking of David, said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Ephesians 2.3 says, We are all by nature children of wrath. That's our original inherited status through Adam. And here's why I took that detour. It's because that means that this child that we are looking at in this text, he foreshadows, I believe, the future of everyone that is living in bondage to sin. And if that's all of our automatic settings when we are born, then we need to pay attention. We need another kingdom than the kingdom that we're in. N notice just two realities that reveal how utterly dark the darkness is in verses 21 to 22. First, did you notice that this demon, we are told that he has been tormenting this man's son since this boy was a child? Did you catch that? Since he was a child. Satan, his kingdom, Satan hates the little children. Jesus loves them. Not only that, second, you'll notice uh, that we're told that the demon's goal is murder. Did you see that in verse 22? It says the demon, here's what he's doing to this kid. It says that he is throwing him in the fire 
and in the water to try to destroy him. He is trying to drown him and to burn him alive. He wants to destroy this child. That is, hear me, a picture of the kingdom of darkness. That's its desire and its goal for you and for me. A Christian and non-Christian alike, don't miss this. Sin, sin characterizes citizens of the kingdom of darkness. But sin doesn't always look dark to the eyes or to the heart. See, see, we've gotten a snapshot of how utterly dark the darkness is, but so often when sin, which comes from the darkness, hits our doorstep, it looks like light, and it makes great promises of joy. See, sometimes Satan comes as an angel of light, promising all kinds of good without the dark consequences. So maybe this morning you are, like many men, you, you, you struggle with your eyes, and your eyes are roaming. They are roaming, looking for a woman who can satisfy some kind of inward longings for either intimacy or for uh, satisfaction and fulfillment. And maybe sin may feel like freedom. You know, it looks like, it feels like freedom to look, but in, in reality, as we look and as we think and as we let our hearts run wild, what we don't understand is happening is we are simultaneously shackling and chaining ourselves spiritually. And all the while, we, we feel so free, and yet we're binding ourselves. And the same is true of pride and self-righteousness, envy, unresolved conflicts that we have in our lives. All of those sins that we continue to let go on that feel so free, in reality, God says, you are chaining and shackling yourselves. It is for freedom that I have set you free. Don't bind yourself anymore to the sin that I've delivered you from. See, Sin always makes great promises of lasting joy when it only intends to kill, steal, and destroy. It's it's, it's always been its agenda. And Christian, this morning, if you think that grace frees you to sin, I want to let you know what Paul would say. Paul would respond this way, God forbid. God forbid. Bondage to sin is what you have been freed from, not to. And the Bible says the reality is that your vision of freedom is actually enslaving you. Now, I don't agree with uh, everything that English novelist George Orwell, he wrote Animal Farm. I don't agree with everything that he said or believed, but he has a quote that I think fits really well here. He said, the more people chant about their freedom and how free they are, the more loudly I hear their chains rattling. Did you catch that? The more people chant about their freedom and how free they are, the more, uh, more loudly I hear their chains rattling. Guys, catch this. When we make a covenant with our eyes... When we make a covenant with our eyes, we should not look lustfully upon a woman. When we make that covenant with him, we are doing that for two reasons. One is for the glory of God. That is for sure, and that is most important. But we are also, catch this, making it simultaneously for our eternal joy. It is for your good and your happiness that we protect ourselves from looking in a way that we ought not. That's the, that's the, the message of the Bible. Sin is always bad and seeks to kill us. Faith obeys God with an eye to the joy that is set before us in the future based on the hope that is grounded in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. See, we need to run from sin like we would run from hell because the darkness is utterly dark. Sin, it promises to give you joy, but it takes your life. And this boy's spiritual bondage is a mild foreshadowing of the ultimate future of all who live in utter darkness. And he ought to, he ought to cause us to fly to a better kingdom. Now, this kingdom is to be found, catch this, in a person and not a place. 
This, this kingdom is to be found in a person and not a place, the better kingdom. We see that in verses 22 to 24. See, Jesus is the remedy for unbelief. Jesus is the remedy for unbelief. Notice what this man, with an uncertain faith, says to Jesus in verses 22 to 24. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now you could tell that Jesus takes exception to this dad saying, if you can help us, right? Why? Because he responds, if you can, like, do you know who I am? You should have been up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, right? Like, I am Lord of lords, God of gods, King of kings. And here what we find is, is that the faith in question here isn't Jesus's, but his father's. When Jesus answers him and says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Who is the one who believes that he's speaking of? Well, he's speaking of this man, not, not Jesus' faith. Commentator R.T. France explains it this way. It, it is the faith of the Father rather than that of the exorcist, being Jesus, which is in question. Faith is not a mechanical aid to the exorcist, but rather the attitude. Or better, the relationship with God required of all concerned if the force of evil is to be defeated. And it's almost as though here Jesus died for the sin. What we find is it's almost here that Jesus is saying that he has come to help him in a very unique way. Uh, And Jesus, as he speaks to him, catch this. I believe what it sounds is happening is Jesus is effectually beckoning forth faith out of this man. Right? He says, basically, if, if you believe, then it can happen. And basically, in that moment, it's almost as though he's beckoning forth faith out of this man. And this father notices his response. This father immediately responds in verse 24, crying out, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, I know when you read that, you're thinking, that sounds really strange. Sounds almost contradictory. Right? I mean, it almost sounds, when you read that, like he's saying, I believe, help my not believing. Like, well, how can you believe and not believe at the same time? Well, personally, I can relate to this man's cry. I kind of get it. Do you? I mean, if you've experienced faith, you've also experienced struggles of doubt, difficulties. And and here, what we find is, is we know, as we hear this man's cry, a very familiar affirmation of the fragility and complexity of our hearts. I mean, haven't you seen that? I think one of the things that has struck me more than anything as a pastor over the past, uh, over 10 years, is just the, the astonishing way that the, the human heart is so fragile and yet stubborn at the same time. And, and here we find this, I think, evidenced in this man as he is very honest about the nature of who he is. I believe you can do it, and yet at the same time, I'm not sure that you can. And if any of us, as we look at this, are really honest. We know that he speaks in some ways for all of us. See, if any of us really believed fully as we ought, we would always obey God. Does anybody here always obey God? Well, then there are obviously some ways that we don't always believe God as we should. And see, here what we find is, is praise God that Jesus died for the sin of doubt too. 
right? Like Jesus didn't just die for specific sins, but all sins, including our doubt in Him. And this man, I believe, spoke better than he knew. Jesus is both the source and object of this man's faith. And the object of his faith is stronger than his faith itself. And that's what he's telling us. Jesus Christ and who he is is powerful, even though this man, even in his faith, is weak and small. And only God can give the faith that he needs. We know this is true. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8, he tells us there, For it is by grace through faith that you are saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. See, every good gift comes from God, including faith. And faith is the instrument that connects us to Christ and his spirit in such a way that God will progressively make us more holy, including growing a confidence in us, in Jesus and who he is. See, that's why I believe we want our church trinity uh, to be a place and a people who create space for grace to different people in different places in their walks with Christ and unique histories and struggles, and we want them to come and grow with us. We want to be a place where people feel welcome to do that. And not just because we have good coffee in the lobby, right? We want it to be for the people in the pews who love them, a people who humbly confess our sins, trusting that our hope is in Jesus and not ourselves. You know, one of the beautiful things about the confession of sins We can only be honest about our sins if our hope is not in ourselves, it's in someone else, and that's Jesus. And it's when Jesus really is king of our lives, Lord of all that is, that we can be honest about who we are. See, a people who does that, we reveal the power and truth of the gospel, the good news of it. Now, don't you want to be a church? Don't you want to be a church on the lookout for visitors so we can step into the messiness of their lives to point them to a better kingdom where mercy reigns? That's the kind of place I want to be. See, this space for grace only exists when we know that it's not the greatness of our faith that saves, it's the object of our faith. Now, if you're a non-Christian, let me just encourage you that we want to be a place here and a people where you are safe to come and ask questions about your doubts. We would love to tell you the answer that is to be found in Christ. And there are many here who would love to even meet with you, to read the scriptures, to spend time with you, get to know you, and love you towards Christ. If you'd like to know somebody like that, talk to me after the service. But if you're a Christian, we have a message here too. You need to know that if you're struggling with doubts, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. See, Jesus is the material ground of our justification before God. He is the anchor of our souls. Uh, There is nothing that is immovable about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Now, on the other hand, though Jesus is the material ground, uh, what we know is, is that our faith is the instrumental ground. It's the thing that God uses to connect us to Christ. But praise be to God that when we lift up our hands to Jesus, as feeble as they are, as little strength we have in our faith, what we know is, is that Christ reaches back and grabs us. And his grip on us is tighter always than our grip on him. It's because he is our sovereign king who reigns over us, who does not give up on us. Uh, we see this picture all throughout the New Testament. Uh, see, in Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, even the same disciples who have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ we are told as they see him raised from the dead, worship him, and then he adds this little phrase, but some doubted. Do you catch that? Even some of the disciples struggle to believe as they ought. And there Jesus doesn't just fix them. No, he, he simply sends them out to preach the gospel. Why? 
Because Christians have the Holy Spirit, but we are all sinners saved by grace who are growing and maturing in our faith. Now, if you have doubts, let me encourage you this morning to try something new. Rather than giving in to your doubts, let me encourage you just to doubt your doubts. Have you ever tried that? Like, I'm sure you've had a doubt that's like struck you and you're like, oh man, I just don't know if I can believe anymore. But have you ever spent as much time doubting the doubt that caused you to doubt in the first place? I think about it this way. Uh, you're studying your Bible and all of a sudden you find what appears to be a contradiction. And you're like, oh my goodness, this says this and that says that. I just can't read my Bible anymore. Uh, how many of us actually deal with doubt in that way? We give up as soon as the problem is exposed. What if God really through his spirit is just encouraging you, calling you to look to your word even more deeply and to seek a pastor so that you're getting shepherding or another teacher who can help you actually see how the word of God fits together and does it contradict itself so that in the end your faith is stronger than when you began? Brothers and sisters, that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to, to grow in your faith and use your doubts as a trail that, you, that leads you to greater faith. Study and seek to show yourself approved. Your faith will grow on the other side of it. But catch this, our faith is not perfect, but the object of our faith is. As a good friend of mine says all the time, as we think about the object of our faith, what is the object of our faith? And that's Jesus, right? That's Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the focal point of where we put our hope and our trust with all of our future. And don't miss Jesus' powerful response to this man's uncertain faith in verses 25 to 27. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus we find that Jesus rescues this boy from spiritual bondage. Jesus rescues this boy from spiritual bondage. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. It says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing in him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So here what we find is a beautiful picture of the power of Jesus Christ. Now, why does Jesus do this? Was it because of the greatness of the man's faith that he responded so powerfully? Well, no, it was because of the object of his faith being Jesus himself. See, Jesus demanded the demon to come out of the boy and never return. And the demon seems almost, as he's coming out, to be drug out, kicking and streaming by Jesus and his simple command. And he leaves the boy, we're told, like a corpse. Now, Jesus simply took him by the hand, this corpse-like boy, and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, you might ask, was he actually dead? I don't think so. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. I don't think that's what's being pictured here. I think he was dead-like. And he really causes us to think back to Jairus' daughter, who Jesus lifted up and caused to arise. See, both of those words point forward, I believe, for us. They point back to Jairus' daughter, reminding us of Jesus raising her from the dead, but also the people that would have heard this would have been reminded of Jesus, who was raised from the dead and promised to raise up all those who would follow him. So in this, I believe we have a picture of the hope that we have as Christians. Here, we get a preview. A preview of the last day in this man's son being saved from spiritual bondage. That's the hope that all of us have to look to. Of course, this picture does lack the clarity that will come after the cross in all kinds of ways. Uh, for one, we know that the new covenant says that each of us must put our individual faith in Christ 
to be saved. We don't go through a mediator other than Jesus himself. And that faith rescues us from the domain of darkness. That faith transfers us into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And each of us must do that on our own to be rescued from our sins and spiritual bondage and the kingdom of sin. Don't miss this. Jesus is the certain object of our faith. And that faith unites us with Christ and an inheritance that is to await. Faith leads to obedience. Unbelief leads to disobedience. Faith provides eternally, sin temporally. Faith brings life, sin brings death. Faith is focused on Jesus. Unbelief, trust in anything else other than Jesus. And this explains, I believe, ultimately why the disciples failed. This is why the disciples failed. It was a misplaced trust. And we see that, I believe, clearly in verses 28 to 29 as we end. Look there at what happens. There we're told... And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now I know that when you read that, there are probably a couple of questions that come to mind. Uh, One, he says, this kind, and so you're thinking, are like, there are different power levels of demons, like leaded and unleaded. And and the second question you might ask yourself is uh, also, He says that it can't be taken out except by prayer. And so is Jesus saying the disciples didn't pray? Like, is that what's going on? Well, well, for the first one, as far as are there different power levels of demons, um, I don't necessarily see that in the text. You will remember that back in Mark 5, there was a legion of demons that uh, that, uh, this child was delivered of, the demoniac. Um, but we don't see, it doesn't seem like, different power levels of demons. Maybe, but I just don't think that we see that clearly, and I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say here. But as for the second question, did the disciples pray to remove the demons, or did they just forget to pray? Well, it doesn't look like they prayed. See, that's understandable, I, I think, from a human perspective. I mean, you can imagine, like, they're constantly going. Sometimes all they have on the boat is one loaf of bread for like 12 of them. And and so uh, they're constantly in a hurry, hungry, uh, you know, scattered, trying to minister. And in the midst of it all, what we find is that they have forgotten to pray and they are attacked by a crowd who are begging them to immediately deliver a child from a demon. And they just go to work like they have in the past. They don't pray. I think that's exactly what happens here. They neglected to pray, which means they, I believe, failed to look to God for help. Do you see it? They sought to fight the power of darkness in their own strength, and they failed epically. So the disciples forgot their utter dependence on the unique power of Jesus, uh, the unique power of Jesus over the gates of hell. Jesus alone has power over the gates of hell, and they were looking somewhere else. And this public humiliation was exactly what these disciples needed to drive them back to Jesus for help that only he could provide. Uh, Let me just ask you this morning as we close, what does your prayer life say about where you're putting confidence in your war with spiritual darkness? Do, Do you not pray because you do not really quite understand the fact that there are two kingdoms and one seeks to take your life while the other seeks to give you life? And that the only way that we do have victory over the darkness is in Christ. And the only help that we have that can help us is is from God Himself. We can't do it on our own. Does your prayer life say that in the way that you pray to God, in the way that you are 
looking to God for help daily? Is it it of first concern, do you recognize daily, Christian, that you need to pray because you actually are going up against spiritual forces that you cannot control? They will not budge without Jesus? Let me encourage you, pray. Pray more. Pray that God would give you the desire to pray more, that He would give you greater faith, that He would call you back to Himself more. See, this morning, what is glorious is because of what Jesus did on the cross, he died so that we have access to God, so that we have help in time of need. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He gave us an audience with God himself in Christ. So pray, don't neglect that audience that you have with the powerful God on your behalf. Non-Christian this morning, if you were hearing this, know this. You are in the kingdom of darkness and you need to be delivered and the only one that can do that for you is Jesus. Don't leave here today without being saved from that kingdom by putting your faith in Jesus and his death for you on the cross. We, we would want nothing more for you than to spend eternity with you, with the great beloved son who died so that you might be freed from spiritual bondage. See, brothers and sisters, prayer is the anthem of those who have been liberated from the domain of darkness by Jesus. Prayer is our anthem. Let's sing it loudly. Pray with me.